This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. I appreciate you tuning in to Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We live in a time of rising food costs and even food shortages. Threats to the world food supplies are growing, and some places are experiencing quite severe food scarcity. The Bible prophesies of devastating famines plaguing our world in the time ahead. But in our first segment on today's show, we're going to talk about a different kind of famine, a spiritual famine that is about to befall us. This is a serious warning in Scripture that we need to take seriously and prepare ourselves for. It's been one year since America's shameful retreat from Afghanistan. After 20 years of trying to rout the Taliban, we returned the nation to this radical Islamist terrorist group. Well, after a year of being back under Taliban control, how is Afghanistan faring? We'll hear a report about this from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. Then we'll talk about why so many people have problems with eating grains. What has been such a staple in man's diet throughout history causes a lot of people health problems today. We'll talk to holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian about gluten intolerance and why wheat can give us trouble. We'll also talk about how to improve your gut health. And I'll conclude the program today by talking about some of the benefits of reading books. If you knew a famine was coming, wouldn't you prepare for it? Surely you would work to ensure that you and your family had plenty of food supplies that would last through that famine. Physical famines are devastating. They cause starvation and sickness and death. But did you know that the Bible prophesies of a spiritual famine that is even more devastating? This is a famine with eternal implications. God forewarns of this famine that is about to befall America and all nations. Are you prepared? Studying into this prophecy should motivate us to greater urgency. You can find this prophecy in Amos 8 and verse 11. Behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Right now, God's word is readily available. God's work is diligently broadcasting and streaming the message of God and the truths of the Bible through the internet, over cable TV and television and radio airwaves. We're publishing regular magazines, books and booklets. We're sending out all kinds of literature, including Bible correspondence courses. We're operating at full capacity, virtually unrestricted and unhindered. And people the world over can easily access this truth and receive it freely at no cost. But this verse in Amos speaks of a time when this easy access ends, a time when the truth of God will be terribly scarce, a rare commodity. And the next verse, verse 12, pictures how devastating this will be. It says, And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. What will cause this kind of crazed hunger for God's word? Other prophecies show that 
conditions in the world at this time will be so bad, people will be starving for spiritual understanding, hunting diligently for explanations and solutions to these terrible crises and curses, but their quest will come up empty. It's quite a chilling prophecy. When will this happen and why? Well, we have to look elsewhere in biblical prophecy for answers. There are several prophecies that describe a violent period at the end of this present age of man. Jesus Christ, in his Olivet Prophecy, called it a time of great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Other parallel passages say that this period will last three and a half years, times time and half a time, or 42 months, or 1260 days. These are just different ways of expressing the same period of time. You can read about these in Daniel 12, in Revelation 11, Revelation 12, Revelation 13. Daniel 12 and verse 11 describes this period this way, and from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. Now the abomination that makes desolate is referred to in other prophecies as armies, armies from the king of the north, or the beast power. You can read about that in Revelation 13. These are European armies surrounding Jerusalem. And this aligns with other prophecies showing that Europe is going to unite. It is going to combine together, not just economically and politically, but also militarily. And it's going to send these armies into the Holy Land. So this prophecy in Daniel says at that time, the daily sacrifice will be taken away. And daily sacrifice is prophetic language for God's work. God's work is going to be taken away. This you can combine together with Revelation 12, which shows that during that period of tribulation, God is going to protect his people in a place of safety. It says, calls it her place in the wilderness in that passage. So there in that place of refuge, God's people will escape the horrors of the great tribulation. Now, what's interesting is that verse in Daniel says that from the time God's people are taken away and those armies surround Jerusalem, it says there are 1,290 days. So this is a countdown to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it starts 30 days before the 1,260 days of the Great Tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ said, when you see those armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee. That is God's signal that the Great Tribulation is about to begin, probably within 30 days. It's time to go. It's also interesting, Daniel 12 and verse 12, the very next verse says, blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So here's a 1,335-day period, which, which starts that countdown 45 days still earlier. So this is probably when 
God's work in this present age will end, and the famine of God's word will begin 1,335 days before Jesus Christ returns. Imagine a man who's been watching the Key of David for a year on the same channel at the same time every Sunday morning. He wakes up at 6 a.m. He makes his coffee and breakfast. At 7 o'clock, he turns on the TV to watch the Key of David as usual. But today, there's a news program in its place. He calls the literature request line to try to find out what happened to the program. But instead of the friendly voices of the volunteer church members and college students answering the line to take his literature request, he hears this. We're sorry, the number you have reached is not in service. Please check the number or try your call again. This is a recording. He goes online to thetrumpet.com, but all that comes up is a 404 error code. There's no trumpet daily. There's no trumpet hour. There's no trumpet brief emails. He visits pcg.church. He gets the same story. There's no signposts. There's no more magazines, no more booklets available to order. This is going to happen. There's coming a point when the headquarters office of the Philadelphia Church of God in Edmond, Oklahoma, and all the regional offices of the PCG around the world will close permanently. The voice of God's end-time watchmen will go silent. The printing presses will stop. The Key of David program will be taken off the air. And just like that, really in a day, people who have been watching the program and ordering literature will be cut off from it. Readers of the websites and the magazines, followers of the radio programs and the podcasts won't be able to receive that material anymore. God says the word of the Lord will become scarce. The truth will no longer be accessible. And this is going to cause many people to panic. They'll run to the north and the south and the east and the west, but they won't find God's message the way they could before. This is the famine of the word. It appears from Daniel 12 that from that point, God's people will have 45 days to prepare for their flight, followed by a 30-day period to actually travel to the place of safety, and right after that, the 1260-day Great Tribulation will start. How close are we to the fulfillment of this prophecy in Amos 8? Well, we can get an important clue by looking at the context. The chapter just before this one, Amos 7, is a prophecy specifically about America, the superpower among the modern nations of Israel. Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Flurry, has written a lot about this chapter in recent years. His new book, America Under Attack, explains it in quite a lot of detail. In verse 8 of Amos 7, God says that he is measuring the nation and he's giving his final warning before he allows the nation to be destroyed. I will not again pass by them anymore, he says. Well, we're living in the time frame of this prophecy right now. Starting in verse 9, you have a prophecy about the nation being ruled by a Jeroboam, whom Mr. Flurry has 
said in this end time is Donald Trump. This is a major reason why he believes Mr. Trump is going to return to the presidency to fulfill the remainder of this prophecy in Amos 7. Most of this hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's just ahead of us. This passage describes a confrontation between the political leaders and the Church of God in a time when the land cannot bear the message of God's Church. This is a time of serious crises hammering the nation and God's Church explaining why God is sending these curses, and the people cannot handle it. That shows you just how strong the message from God's Church will get and how hard human nature is, the way that people respond to that message. They just want to silence it. Well, this passage, Amos 7, shows what they're going to do. God's people are going to be cast out of the nation, exiled. In verse 12, God's messenger is told to get out and move to Judah in the Middle East. In his book, Amos, the Lion Has Roared, Mr. Fleury wrote this, These powerful men told Amos, Shut up! Shut your mouth! But this mighty prophet remained loyal to God and refused to do so. Do we have the spiritual courage required to tell people, including the leaders of nations, exactly what is about to happen? God's prophecies will not go unfulfilled. They will happen precisely as God has ordained. Look how strong Amos was. How easy it would be if the land couldn't bear the message to give up. Amos never did. And you can see in this passage how Amos actually get, gets stronger. He tells exactly what God's judgment will be for the people's rebellion. Now, all of this is a prelude to the prophecy of Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, about the famine of the Word of God. During the horrifying three and a half years of the tribulation and the day of the Lord, there will be no religious freedom. The entire Western world will be held captive under the resurrected Holy Roman Empire. The church and state combined. The religion and all the schools will be under a religious authority enforced by the civil police. And in the Eastern world, people will be under the yoke of atheistic dictatorship. Nowhere will the preaching of the true gospel be permitted. The misery and the suffering in this world will escalate to unprecedented levels. People will be desperately searching for hope. In his Amos booklet, Mr. Fleury actually wrote a chapter. Chapter 4 is called The Famine of the Word, and it says, Soon people will not be able to find any of these booklets. They won't be able to find any spiritual food. People will be crying out for God's Word, His revealed prophecies. But then it will be too late physically. God's very elect will be in a place of safety. Those who paid attention are going to realize what they didn't do and what they should have done. God's word will cease being preached except by the two witnesses. Now that reference there is an indication of a plan that God has to give people hope. The famine of the word will not last 
for long. During the 1260 days, Revelation 11 shows that two witnesses will arise to prophesy. These two faithful representatives will be the only voices of warning heard during the tribulation. They'll be pleading with mankind to repent and turn to God, especially warning the European empire about the coming Asian hordes from the east. And then at some point during that three and a half years, God will revive his work in the place of safety. The two witnesses will be backed and supported by God's very elect from that place in the wilderness. Somehow, even with the world engulfed in chaos and war, a powerful work will be done. God's people in the place of safety will be working and continuing that daily sacrifice that was taken away. Prophecies show that these saints will be developing that wilderness area into a lush Garden of Eden. They'll be demonstrating to the whole world how to build and beautify the earth and make it blossom as the rose. It will literally be the world tomorrow in embryo. And this will be a, an inspiring and hopeful message that complements the warning being proclaimed by the two witnesses. It will be especially aimed at the nations of Israel and all the victims of that beast power but really, eventually, for all people on earth. These prophecies are getting close. The context of Amos 8 shows that the time is very near. This should motivate us to be urgent in supporting God's work while we have the opportunity to reach people before this famine of the word sets in. You remember the story in the book of Genesis where God made it known to Joseph when he was in Egypt exactly when the seven years of famine would come. Joseph had seven years to prepare for it. And he didn't put off preparing until the very last bit of time. Had he done that, Egypt would have been destroyed. He started planning and preparing right away, storing up food enough to last all seven years of that famine. Well, like Joseph, we should be preparing for the famine of the word now, while the truth is still plenteous. Time is short. Christ told us in John 9 and verse 4 to work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. The most important thing now is getting out God's message of warning and getting out his message about the soon coming establishment of his family government on earth, getting that message out to the largest audience we possibly can. We're living in the time just before the end of this age, and soon there will be a famine of the Word of God. Our days of opportunity are numbered. Now, thankfully, the tribulation will be cut short by God's intervention. If God didn't act to cut short that Satan-influenced time of trouble, no human flesh would be saved alive. But after Jesus Christ returns and resurrects his people, his firstfruits, including the two witnesses, then he and his saints will restore God's government to earth. And the knowledge of God's way will cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. There will be no more famines, physical or spiritual, forever. 
This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. It was last August that America retreated from Afghanistan and returned that country to the control of the Taliban. How is Afghanistan faring after a year? We'll learn some answers in this report from Abraham Blondeau. It was only one year ago that we were shocked by the scenes coming out of Afghanistan. Desperate Afghans were running next to moving aircraft, climbing onto the sides of the plane, and even holding on to the aircraft after it took off, with some falling hundreds of feet to their death. Human remains became lodged in landing gears. They were trying to escape the cruel hands of the Taliban because the United States was leaving them behind. After Joe Biden announced that the United States would be leaving Afghanistan for good, American troops pulled out of Kandahar and Bagram air bases in the middle of the night without even telling the Afghan commanders in charge. Resistance in the country quickly collapsed. Anyone who worked with the American troops or who wanted any kind of future fled the Kabul, the capital, to try and leave with the last remaining American planes. The U.S. Embassy was evacuated with a helicopter flying off the roof, just like Saigon in the Vietnam War. Thousands of screaming people crowded around the small airport as U.S. troops held the perimeter. U.S. troops weren't allowed to leave the airport. The Taliban were hunting down and executing people who were trying to escape. The Taliban would unload an entire magazine into the groups of people as crowd control. Desperate women would try and pass their babies over the crowd to the American troops on the wall. Tim Kennedy, a former Green Beret, went back to Afghanistan to save people he worked with and witnessed women throwing their babies over the wall, hoping they reached safety on the other side. There was barbed wire on both sides of the fence, and many infants died on the wire. And Kennedy remembers stepping over children's bodies and adults' bodies as he went through Kabul to save people. He even recalled how the Taliban would set the infants' bodies on fire as a warning to people who were trying to flee. A bomb was detonated in the dense crowd surrounding the compound. 13 Marines died in the blast and 170 others died. General McKenzie, overseeing the operation as CENTCOM commander, said they trusted the Taliban to enforce security and get the right people to the airport. When the last American aircraft left, an untold amount of American citizens were left behind in the country. Hundreds of billions of dollars worth of military equipment were left behind, and the Taliban proudly paraded them to the world as spoils of victory. Following these dramatic scenes, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote this in the October 2021 Trumpet, quote, It sent an unmistakable message to both allies and enemies worldwide. America does not keep its promises. We do not honor commitments. We cannot be trusted even to protect our own people. Now, millions of people are going to be greatly persecuted and killed. Children and women are going to be abused, raped, and murdered, end quote. This is exactly what has happened over the past year. 
When the Taliban started to attack and our Afghan allies saw the American military was no longer supporting them, a vast majority of the troops, including special forces who had massive amounts of U.S. equipment, fled into Iran. People were almost immediately beaten in the streets for violations of the strict Sharia law. Other men were publicly executed and their bodies hung from cranes in public squares as a warning to the Afghan people of what to expect from their Taliban masters. Women's rights have been attacked. Despite promises the Taliban have made before the takeover, women and girls have been prevented from attending schools or getting any kind of education. The Taliban have also ordered women to wear full body coverings in public. Even before America completely left a year ago, the Taliban were beginning to bring back sex slavery and forced marriages. Women and girls as young as 15 were taken as war brides for Taliban fighters. In a few cases reported in the media, girls as young as one year old were being sold off as future brides for men. The United Nations mission in Afghanistan released a report where they describe extrajudicial killings, torture, arbitrary arrests, detentions, and other violations of human rights. On top of all these terrible abuses, the Afghan economy has been collapsing. Before America left, international aid made up half of the country's GDP and three-quarters of their public spending. That is all gone now. The Afghan GDP has dropped between 20 and 30% over the past year. 90% of Afghans live in poverty. 70% of them can't afford food and other basic necessities. Many of them are facing critical food shortages and hunger, with the threat of famine hanging over their heads every single season. In these desperate times, there have been reports of Afghan families having to sell their children as slaves or to the Taliban in order to have money for the rest of the family to survive. All of these terrible consequences were predicted well before the Taliban took over Afghanistan. But Afghanistan is not the only nation suffering because of the disastrous withdrawal a year ago. It has also been causing decline in the United States. Mr. Flurry said that the disastrous withdrawal would affect America for the rest of time. In just one year, we have seen how dangerous ripple effects from Afghanistan are still traveling through America. Joe Biden promised that Al-Qaeda would never have a safe haven in Afghanistan again. The Taliban pledged they would not allow Al-Qaeda back into their country, but this has proven to be another hollow pledge. Joe Biden just announced that they had killed the leader of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was killed by an American drone strike in Kabul, where U.S. intelligence claimed he had been living for months. If he had been living here after the United States withdrew, how many other terrorists are in Afghanistan right now? U.S. intelligence know that there are several terrorist groups already building training camps inside of Afghan borders. This comes after the last drone strike in Afghanistan, which happened over a year ago, when the U.S. was withdrawing, where they killed 10 Afghans, including many children, as they sought to hunt down those who were responsible for the bombing in Kabul. Another ripple effect from Afghanistan 
is the recruitment crisis currently being faced by the armed forces. This is partly to blame for the complete collapse of American prestige. Most of the major branches of the U.S. military are falling well short of their quota of new recruits for this coming year. The humiliation in Afghanistan has stained the service, and some Americans are choosing not to serve because of that. Just like Mr. Flurry said, Afghanistan was a megaphone announcement to world dictators that America would not stand up to them. Victor Davis Hanson points this out in his article, How to Erode the World's Greatest Military, quote, The global aftermath was eerie. Russia in a few months thereafter invaded Ukraine. Iran proudly announced it would soon have enough fissionable material to make a nuclear weapon. North Korea resumed its provocative missile launches. China openly talked of storming Taiwan. The common denominator was the global perception that any president and military responsible for such colossal televised incompetence would or could neither deter enemy aggression nor protect allied interests, end quote. The disastrous withdrawal in Afghanistan set off a chain of events across the world where American security guarantees are no longer held in high regard by our allies or our enemies. To this day, none of the leadership responsible for the debacle have been held to account. All of them still have their jobs. The only individuals to lose their jobs were those who criticized the Biden administration for its decision and implementation. The media are pondering this anniversary, but they are missing the most important takeaway. All of this chaos, all of the dishonor, and all of the terrible consequences were not the result of incompetence. They were deliberately planned to destroy the United States. This is what Mr. Flory wrote in the article, This isn't incompetence, this is treason. Quote, The Afghanistan catastrophe is an abject, shameful dishonor for America. The mighty American military simply surrendered to the Taliban. Our nation lost nearly 2,500 soldiers and spent $275 million per day, every day, for 7,267 days of the war, more than $2 trillion in 20 years. Yet our soldiers were evacuated in absurd haste to leave this nation to barbarians. This has been the worst foreign policy disaster in the nation's history. This terrible defeat was a spectacle seen by the entire world, and they were watching intently. It will mar our history, perhaps for the rest of time. Many people say it proves Joe Biden's incompetence, but this catastrophe isn't the result of bungling and bad judgment. It is a deliberate, planned effort to destroy America. This is not mere incompetence. It is calculated destruction. It is treachery." End quote. This somber anniversary is a reminder of the ultimate motive of the Biden administration, which is really the third term of Barack Obama, which is to undermine American power abroad. These radical communists want to, quote, blot out the name of Israel, end quote, as the Bible says in 2 Kings 14.27, which means they are attacking anything that gives America power and influence. America's position as a superpower was given as a blessing from God, and the radical left want to abase America on the world stage 
and empower our enemies. This foreign policy has only intensified over the past year, and more disasters will be ahead for America. This is important history to remember. It is the dramatic fulfillment of Bible prophecy and a reminder that only the Bible can truly explain what is going on inside America and the world right now. To prove all of this for yourself, please read Mr. Flory's newly expanded book, America Under Attack. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. The song America the Beautiful praises this nation's amber waves of grain, field after field of gold-colored wheat, blessings of agricultural wealth and nutritional prosperity across the American plains. But the perception of whether all that wheat is really a blessing changed in the last decade, especially since 2011, when the book Wheat Belly appeared by author William Davis. Nearly three million copies of this book sold, and it carries the message, modern grain is the world's most destructive dietary ingredient. Is that true? To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist Jorg Mardian. Hello, Jorg. Hello. So there is a lot of uh, belief. There's a lot of, of people who have problems with wheat, and there's a lot of talk about gluten and gluten intolerance. Uh, this didn't seem to be an issue in times past. What changed? Why has this become such a big issue today? Right. Um, and it is an issue, of course. And, there, and I think it's twofold. Uh, primary, it has to do with our lifestyle and what we do with our food supply. And uh, to a smaller degree, it has to do with perception. And as you noted, um, the book Wheat Belly was a groundbreaking book, and it did change a perception of what wheat is uh, in the sense that it popularized this message that most of the seas comes from wheat. You know, and, and, and I, I think that is, you know, unnecessary uh, because it can't be proven, but um, it rests on a primary ingredient, gluten, and that's a wheat protein, and that causes an inflammatory response in the human gut. Um, so the consensus is that this is the, the very foundation of most of the diseases that plague us today. And, you know, Americans are jumping on this bandwagon, and this, this anti-wheat thing is huge, and that has spawned this, this gluten-free billion-dollar industry you know, and now everybody's avoiding gluten and, and, and uh, of course, wheat as well, which is very nutritious for you. And I think there's something like right now, the, the statistics say um, that 1% of people have the autoimmune disorder, uh, celiac disease, right? And, and that makes them seriously ill if they consume gluten. And, and that's true. Uh, it's not that many. Uh, about 0.1% have a what's called a wheat allergy, and that's that can be very um, tough on you as well. It can be deadly even. And scientists say there's about 5.7% that need to be careful with gluten intolerance. You know, so that gluten intolerance is is it mimics celiac disease without the the the, the wicked side effects. You know, the, the being as deadly as it is. 
the rest, the 93%, they're just very confused. Huh. Well, those no. are those statistics, uh, that is pretty remarkable because it does seem like there are a whole lot more than uh, than 7% of the people who are experiencing or, or are having issues that they're attributing to wheat problems and gluten intolerance. That's true. And, and that's what I want to talk about. Um, but is it, is it a true wheat intolerance, a true wheat intolerance because of wheat itself? See, so we have to make a distinction here. So wheat belly was correct in saying that industrial bread and grain consumption plays a large role in a modern health crisis. Mm -hmm. That is correct. But it errs in, in talking about bread as the one monolith product without giving variance or nuance to the subject. Mm -hmm. So let me explain that. Um, you know, first today, what we do with, with wheat is we, we grow it in, in synthetic soil. We, we bathe it in toxic chemicals. We deconstruct it and pulverize it into this fine white flour. Bleach dust, really. Um, vitamins and minerals and healthy oils and bran and fiber, they're removed. And then chemicals and other unhealthy ingredients are added. Okay, so that's one really big issue that's not good for us or the gut ecosystem, which mimics gluten intolerance. Okay, can I can I just ask you? You mentioned uh, a whole lot of processing taking place there, uh, but where it starts is you talked about uh, basically minerally deprived soils, and then you talked about the addition of of toxins and poisons in the form of pesticides and so on. Uh, there's a lot of wheat that is out there on the market that isn't necessarily going through the later stages of that process in terms of the demineralization or bleaching, those types of things. You can get whole wheat, and yet it still may have the issues regarding the, the soil and the production initially. Is that correct? Well, that, that's correct. There are stages to um, bake products. There's stages from white to some fiber added, you know, to, yeah. to so many ingredients removed or added, whatever they want to make as a product. And, you know, and, and I'll touch on that. And that, of course, leads to stages of how we feel. Mm -hmm. the, the more we touch that product, the worse off we are mm -hmm. in, our, in our gut. So, and that plays a lot in, in how our gut responds to that and how we, what we think is a is a gluten intolerance. But it's not just the wheat itself, it's, it's also what we do. And that's what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of things out there that are being done, especially with chemicals. We, and, and that's not even being talked about really. You know, and that goes right into a second point that I wanna make as well, you know, the, the North American diet. Why are we not mentioning that? You know, when, when we're talking about we're intolerant and we have these, these symptoms, is it just gluten or is it what we're eating, you know, with the added, we're actually adding gluten to a lot of uh, processed foods. We have the unhealthy oils, the sugars, the, the artificial sweeteners. They're wrecking our, our gut ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, uh, and that compromises the gut lining and that's what's known as leaky gut. And some doctors say up to 95% of people suffer from that. Mm. It's not just gluten. That's what I'm, that's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. So per se, you know, but, 
and then as well, you know, third, I want to say, some, and a huge point is the the baking of bread has changed. You know, anciently, the ancient wheat forms of, of Eimer and Einkorn and Spelt were always prepared uh, with soaking and sprouting and souring, you know, and that neutralizes a lot of the anti-nutrients in, in, in the seed and it helps in digestion massively, hmm. you know. By us abandoning the sourdough starters and eating gluten in, in what's called an inadequately fermented form today, uh, and then when you mix it in with all these chemicals, well, that's a gastrointestinal nightmare for many, many people. Yeah, you know, that's very so, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a fourth huge point, what people are not understanding about wrecking the gut, and, and they they just blame it all on gluten, is what's called glyphosate use. You know, th these chemicals are sprayed on all the wheat to increase the yield, and it's used as a drying agent, a desiccant right before processing and and that's not washed off so that's an active ingredient in roundup mm. and that's contaminant most of the popular wheat-based foods out there today it's transferred into the human body and urine studies from germany show that uh, 70 to 80 percent of people or 85 percent of people have this in their system oh, yeah, yeah. and I did see a study that proposed that glyphosate use is the most important factor for gluten intolerance today. So um, it, it's not actually the gluten. It's the fact that we're ingesting this poison and the body is responding to the, to the toxin in ways that mimic gluten intolerance. Right. I, and again, I'm not saying true celiac disease doesn't exist. It does in 1% of people, but I'm saying most people who just jump on a bandwagon and say, I'm, I'm you know, gluten intolerant, don't really understand how many ways they're being attacked through diet. Right. Well, they, they could, uh, if they, they say, well, I'm just going to cut out the wheat and then and they do that and they get a good response from it, it's essentially um, the... the what they're cutting out is different than what they, that's hurting them is different than what they think it is. Well, you can cut out the wheat, but what else are you going to cut out of your diet? It's everywhere. Glyphosates are everywhere. Hmm. You know, they're in ev all the food. Wheat isn't every. Whatever you're eating, whatever you're substituting, all the best to you if you're going to try to avoid it all because it's really, really hard. You know, so basically it's the way that wheat is grown, it's processed, it's abused. And it's baked that that the problem is. Hmm. So so wheat in and of itself, I, I guess, what are what are your thoughts on that? You said that uh, that wheat is healthy for you. Uh, you've also talked about just ways that it, it can be grown that are are dangerous. How, how do you approach that? Well, again, you know, we, we can throw the baby with a bathwater, so to speak, but. You know, uh, Davis, the doctor that wrote that book, he states that it's all grains, but to state that even organic heritage weeds that are freshly ground, stone ground, with with everything in it that's good for us are harmful to the average person. That's just a sweeping statement that's inconsistent with facts and studies. Hmm. And many, many scientists disagree with them. Um, I was reading the, the uh, April 1971 edition of uh, Tomorrow's World. Mr. Armstrong said as well, he said that 
he believed that wheat was almost a perfect food. Um, and he said that it contains all the 16 major food elements in, in, in almost perfect balanced form for us, meaning that uh, if the processors don't take that perfect grain apart and they rob it of the, the 12 mineral elements um, and, and turn it into white flour, then it's, it's an alkaline uh, product that's super healthy for us. Hmm. If we take it the way it's supposed to be grown, you know, now, again, people are going to argue, well, not all flour is white, but I'm going to say it's all been touched somewhat by processing of some sort. So, and that's where the trouble lies, you know, as soon as we take it apart, um, then we, we have, we say we have this big problem and then we have to follow a diet like this book, the wheat belly diet. And that's essentially just a, a carb free diet that cuts out bread and pastas and potatoes. You see where this is going. We're not just touching one food now. Uh, Dr. Davis says most starches are bad for us. Well, if it's just gluten, it's also pasta and potatoes, he's saying, you know. And if we have to follow his diet, we're going to be fairly miserable because there's not a lot of food out there. So grain itself contains, um, you know, when Mr. Armstrong said it, it's almost perfect, it contains carbohydrates, proteins, fats, B vitamins, and, and a lot of other minerals that are perfect for uh, individuals, especially when you're out there working. Um, and that's why today we should consume it somewhat in moderation if we're not active, because it does give a lot of energy that we have to expend. So if we're a desk jockey, uh, we don't need as many carbohydrate, uh, high carbohydrate product, but it's still good for us. Um, there's a doctor called Dr. John uh, Dulliard, and he says that people are just not understanding the underlying causes of wheat intolerance. You know, he says there's like uh, 600 studies that show a positive correlation to wheat and health. Hmm. So, to me, that's that's pretty good proof that we're on the right track in what we're discussing here. So, how do you heal your gut? And can wheat, in what form, play a role in that? Okay, so that's the track we need to discuss. Um, for the vast majority of, of gluten-free eaters, not celiac, uh, a return to what's called old-fashioned organic uh, heritage wheat, yeah. uh, freshly ground, like with the bran, with the germ, the endosperm intact, that's what we need. Um, that has everything for human health. Or you can try, if you can't tolerate that, you could try um, ancient grain like uh, quinoa or einkorn or, or spelt or, or ammer, um, whatever you can get at your local stores. And they've been around for millennia and they're free of all this hybridization uh -huh. and, and GMO genetically modified organisms, uh, any manipulation like that. So if you can't find them, and they may be hard to find, then you might want to try a countertop grain mill. Well, I've had those myself. Uh, mm. And it's not as labor intensive as you think. Um, and so you can grind your own grain and make your own bread. Or, you know, if your bakery has them, look for soaked bread or sprouted or sourdough breads. Sourdough is one of my favorites. It's so healthy for you. And if you do have celiac, then, you know, there's gluten-free alternatives like millet and, and sorghum and, and teff 
that you can try as well. Or you can make gluten-free sourdough starter yourself, you know. Um, and there's, uh, of course, a lot of fermented foods that help you with your gut bac um, bacteria as well, you know, uh, kefir, sauerkraut, um, probiotic foods, not. And they keep you very healthy. Um, we don't need to rely on foods like wheat belly to educate us with unsubstantiated claims because these people lack God's knowledge of what a, a true perfect food is. Um, it's, you know, in the Bible, it's mentioned like 300 times wheat throughout uh, thousands of years of biblical history. If we eat it in its unadulterated form, if it's freshly milled, then we have everything we need for abundant health. Hmm. Outstanding. Well, we've been talking with holistic nutritionist Jörg Mardian about wheat and gluten intolerance, and uh, he is working on an article on this subject. You can watch for that on thetrumpet.com. Fascinating stuff, Jörg. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's time for today's Last Word. Do you feel like your attention span is shorter than it used to be? There's a lot of evidence that technology is rewiring our brains and making it more difficult for us to focus and to think deeply. Studies show that in the United States, teenagers focus on one task for an average of only 65 seconds at a time. And office workers aren't much better. They average only three minutes of uninterrupted focus. That's pretty pitiful. But you know, when you're texting and watching TikTok videos all the time, this is what happens. If you can't pay attention, if you can't focus, you're gonna have all kinds of problems. You can't accomplish quality work. You can't give the problems in your life the attention they need to really solve them. You can't pray like you should. You can't Bible study. You can't really develop a proper relationship with God. In Isaiah 1 and verse 18, God says, Come now and let us reason together. God is a deep thinker, and he wants us to think and to reason together with him, to let him guide our thinking. The world around us is constantly trying to do the opposite. In his book, Stolen Focus, Johan Hari explains 12 causes for this collapse in our collective attention span. Chapter 4 is about the collapse of sustained reading. It quotes a study back in 2017 that showed that the average American spent 17 minutes a day reading and 5.4 hours on their smartphone. This book says, reading books trains us to read in a particular way, in a linear fashion, focused on one thing for a sustained period. Reading from screens trains us to read in a different way, in a manic skip and jump from one thing to another. We're more likely to scan and skim when we read on screens, studies have found. We run our eyes rapidly over the information to extract what we need, but after a while, if we do this long enough, this scanning and skimming bleeds over. It starts to color or influence how we read on paper. Reading stops being a form of pleasurable immersion in another world 
and becomes more like dashing around a busy supermarket to grab what you need and then get out again. Studies show that people understand and remember less of what they read on screens. A lot of studies have uh, proved this, and they call it screen inferiority. This book says this gap in understanding between books and screens is big enough that in elementary school children, it's the equivalent of two-thirds of a year's growth in reading comprehension. Now, this book has an interesting section about the message in different forms of media. The way you get information itself carries a message. So think about the messages of social media. And I'm just reading from this book. It talks about the message in Twitter. The messages in this social media platform, Twitter. You shouldn't focus on any one thing for long. The world can and should be understood in short, simple statements of 280 characters. The world should be interpreted and confidently understood very quickly. What matters most is whether people immediately agree with and applaud your short, simple, speedy statements. The message in Facebook is that your life exists to be displayed to other people, that you should be aiming to show your friends edited highlights of your life. What matters is whether people immediately like these edited and carefully selected highlights that you spend your life crafting. Somebody is your, quote, friend if you regularly look at their edited highlights and they look at yours. This is what friendship means. People are using social media a lot, and they're coming to believe these messages. But these are false messages. You can't really understand reality unless you believe the opposite of these things. You can't really understand truth. And this world is getting less and less capable of thinking properly and more and more divorced from truth. Now, the message of books... I'll just read this again from this book. Life is complex, and if you want to understand it, you have to set aside a fair bit of time to think deeply about it. There's value in leaving behind your other concerns and narrowing down your attention to one thing. It's worth thinking deeply about how other people live and how their minds work. These messages are true. Not that everything in books is true, obviously not, but there is a lot of truth in the basic message of what it takes to read a book. Johann Hari writes, I realized that I agree with the messages in the medium of the book. I think they're true. I think they encourage the best parts of human nature, that a life with lots of episodes of deep focus is a good life. It's why reading books nourishes me. And I don't agree with the messages in the medium of social media. I think they primarily feed the uglier and shallower parts of my nature. I like the person I become when I read a lot of books. I dislike the person I become when I spend a lot of time on social media. Reading high-quality books is a terrific way to improve as a thinker especially if you're thinking about what you read. It's a terrific way to reclaim your focus. A lot of studies show the benefits of reading books. Obviously, it expands your knowledge. 
It can keep your mind sharp. It helps you to appreciate solitude and deep thought. It helps you to understand yourself. It strengthens your judgment and your character. It helps you to understand other people. It can increase your sense of empathy. A lot of benefits, but it really can help you reclaim your ability to focus, to put your attention on something. We all could do better at focusing on important things for longer stretches. So get out a book, spend time reading high quality books and use this as a tool to reclaim your mental focus. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Abraham Blondeau and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Orlando Batista. An error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.